Hello, welcome to our first post-coronavirus, post-quarantine, post-face-to-face classroom uh, online lecture in philosophy. Um, obviously the situation isn't ideal, but it's what we've got, so we're going to make do with it. Um, so we have a lot to talk about today here on this lecture. Um, I want to talk about our procedures and stuff going forward as far as the coronavirus is concerned. I have, at this point, probably inundated you with information. Um, we talked about it a lot. <clears throat> what is, for me, last week, what is for you, probably two weeks ago at this point. Um, I posted that long announcement. I just want to clarify quite a few things. Um, so we're going to talk about that first. And then we're going to talk about Descartes, um, which will have its own caveats attached. Um, so first off, again, let me start. Online classes suck. Uh, I stress this in class. I know a lot of people weren't there for that, probably because you were at home protecting yourselves like you're supposed to. Hooray, social distancing. Um, but seriously, if you've never taken an online class before, they are crazy difficult. Um, I know that there's this whole contingent of teachers and people and like an entire section of the population that's like, we should do all of our classes online. It's so convenient. You can do it whenever you want. Students can do it from home. It's easy. You can hold down a job at the same time. Hooray! That's bullshit. Um, online classes suck because there's zero accountability and it's really easy to let them slip away from you. Um, as I stressed in class, like, if you do not keep up with the assignments, if you do not make a schedule for yourself, you will fall out of the habit of doing class stuff really quickly. Um, and I know that you've got tons of stuff competing for your attention right now. Like, as much as it's a quarantine and we're all bored out of our minds and none of us can go to movie theaters or concerts or, you know, do any of the normal basic human things that are kind of essential for living life... Um, I realize that it doesn't take very long before you find ways to fill that time. Um, I'd imagine that quite a few of you are tasked with taking care of siblings or, you know, in some cases, just out-and-out -out children. Um, I know that you've probably got other family responsibilities, or if you're living in an apartment, then you've got to take care of the place. And let's be perfectly honest, there's probably a whole bunch of really cool stuff on Netflix that you could be watching right now. Or a bunch of people you can hang out with online just to talk, or playing video games, or whatever. Lord knows, in the last week I've spent plenty of time playing stupid video games with my friends online, and talking my friend through, like, building his own computer and other crazy stuff like that. My wife and I are hanging out all the time. It's easy to get into those habits. It's easy to run out of time one way or the other. Um... Don't let that happen. We have to treat this as though we are going forward with every bit as important and responsible a class as we did originally. Um, and it is so easy to forget that when the only interaction you have with me is me talking at you for an hour and a half through these lectures, occasionally meeting people online, which is totally optional, by the way, um, or, you know, writing a pithy couple of paragraphs on the reading from time to time um don't slip away from the assignments don't let the quizzes and discussion board posts get away from you don't miss the big stuff the research paper is still coming up the final exam is still scheduled for the same day it used to be um don't forget to do your homework um, and I know it's going to be even easier to ignore the reading assignments. Like, hey, Google is at your disposal. There is zero accountability. Hooray! No, 
if you don't do the reading, then you will totally mess up the research paper and the final exam, and it will go badly for you. So the rule of thumb, what I will emphasize over and over and over again, um, treat this as though it's a face-to-face -face class. Get into a schedule, get into a routine, make it part of your weekly doings. Um, I know we're all sort of revising our schedules under the new paradigm, great make sure this is a part of it like the fact that we're doing it on spring break is super convenient for teachers because we all get to record our lectures a week in advance as i am doing now um it's also super inconvenient for students because you will get into the habit of screwing around all week and forget that you know you got to be responsible in the weeks to come as it is you probably rightfully shouldn't be thinking about your homework right now on this beautiful sunny wednesday in the middle of spring break but if you aren't reading by this weekend, it'll probably start biting you in the butt. Um, so what I would recommend, get into the habit of doing your reading over the weekends, get in the habit of listening to the lectures on Monday, get in the habit of posting on the discussion boards Monday and Tuesday, get in the habit of showing up for that Q&A session on Wednesday and completing the quiz right before you show up, um, and then just get ready to do it all over again uh, each week that routine read lecture discussion board quiz uh q a session um so you know just if you don't get it now it's not going to get any easier as time goes on um and you are as responsible for this class as you were when we were meeting face to face it's just it is much more difficult for me to yell at you about it um you won't see my dis depressed and disappointed face trying to guilt you into doing your assignments, which honestly is super powerful, um, as much as we may resent and be disgruntled by it. So as far as what the actual class is going to do, what changes you can expect, there really isn't that much in here. Um, I know there are tons of professors who are literally panicking, they think this is the end of the world, like they cannot fathom translating their courses online. This is not a huge transition for me. All of our assignments were online anyway, that's how I like it. I don't like wasting class time with tests and quizzes and writing assignments and stuff. Um, so basically none of the due dates are going to change. Everything is the same. The quizzes are still due at 9.15 in the morning on Wednesdays, that doesn't change. Um, We've done both response papers. That's not a big deal. We don't have to worry about it. The research paper still due the same day. The final exam will be due on the day that it would have been administered. Um, basically, the requirements for this class aren't going anywhere. I'm just adding a little bit to, again, keep you accountable and be able to do the bit of class discussion that we were doing in class online. So to accomplish that, there's sort of three major things I've done to change things. Um, first off, surprise, I'm recording lectures. Uh, this is going to be fairly normal. My goal is to record one lecture a week for this class, um, but I may switch to two in particularly difficult weeks. I know when I do deliver my lecture on the research paper, I'll probably post that in addition to whatever we're talking about that week in class. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, but generally speaking, this is going to be the main way you get the information about the class. I'm going to sit down with my little recording program and my stupid little video game headset, and I'm going to record an hour and a half or two hour long lecture. This one might run a little long. Um, I'm hoping to aim for about an hour and a half per week from here on out. 
thus letting the question and answer session take care of all the rest of what we would do in class. Um, but in general, you're going to want to listen to the lectures. Like, it's super easy. By all means, I am not going to judge you if you turn it on and, like, do something else in the meantime. By all means, play, like, Candy Crush or whatever while you're listening to this. I re-listen to my old lectures after I've recorded them to make sure I haven't done anything like belch into the microphone. And I usually do it while playing Magic Arena or something else uh, similarly easy to alt-tab out of. Um, but don't, like completely blowed off please uh remember these this is philosophy it's heavy duty stuff it's tough to wrap your brain around it and if you just listen to it as the background noise to whatever game you're playing and are only paying like 10 percent of your attention to it it won't take uh ideally you're going to be sitting there in front of your computer listening to me talk with your book open so you can follow along as i talk to you um maybe even look at some of the comments on the discussion boards not you know listening to this while watching a youtube video um obviously i can't control it but again this is one of those cases where it's going to be really easy to downplay the stuff you're supposed to be doing for class and while it may not seem like it's screwing you over it will totally screw you over um so give these lectures a decent listen like if you're not going to listen to them 100 percent of your attention then maybe listen to them twice so you can pick up on any details that you might miss the first time around um they are important in their own right. I don't do them just for my health. Like, everybody says when I come to class, you know, they've read the material and it makes zero sense to them, and I do the lecture and everything is suddenly clear. Um, great. Except now I can only do lectures in audio formats and you can totally blow them off. Don't do that. Remember, you needed it to understand. Um, again, I don't want to be condescending or anything, but seriously, this is an important component of the class. Please do not blow it off. Um, I wish I could devote more time and energy to it, like get a legit web video going, something a little bit more polished, but if I'm going to be turning out three lectures a week for this and my other classes, um, it's going to be real difficult to devote any more time to it than I already am. As it is, like, it's spring break. I have zero other responsibilities. There are no Q&A sessions yet, and recording two lectures a day is difficult um so you know this is what we've got to work with so take it seriously um the other half of your of the change like that is taking place now that we are moving online um there are the discussion boards and the qa q a sessions um the discussion boards are what they say on the tin um like i'm going to post three discussion boards i think they're already online already on the modules page um, or if not on the modules page, and they will be shortly, um, you are responsible to post substantially twice every week. Um, now the discussion board questions are set up, so like I'm asking a substantial question about the text. Um, I am submitting that question for discussion. You can use one of your posts to just answer one of the questions. I would highly recommend that. Um, you can also use your discussion board requirements to respond to some of the other students. I mean, you've been privy to our long class discussions. They spend a lot of time on tangents. We have a lot of fun talking about this stuff. By all means, I'd rather have, like, a bunch of people talking to each other than a bunch of people answering the same question and basically submitting, like, a graduated response paper to these discussion board questions. Um, but I do want something substantial. Like, don't give me a one or two line, I like that post, I agree. Um, give me something substantial bring something new to the table have some like considered discussion about this material 
Um, in addition to the discussion board questions, there's also going to be a couple of ongoing stuff, one for Discord, which you can post to at any time if you have questions about the interface on Discord. Um, another, which is just general questions. Again, it'll be open the entire semester. If you have any questions, feel free to ask. Again, the danger here is disconnection. Like, if you get too out of the habit if you aren't paying attention to what's going on in class you'll just drift away i would much rather you harass me on a daily basis like what are the assignments due today what what do i need to do for this week um when is the research paper due i will respond to you i will try and get back to you as best as i can um but i definitely want you to maintain that connection like that's the that's the big danger here that's what i'm most worried about is that you know, all the students who I have hostage in my room when they come to my class, I now have lost complete control over and you are all going to just like wander away and just do other frivolous things and completely ignore our class. Um, don't let that happen. So post to the discussion boards, post multiple times, like post four or five times if you want to participate in the discussion. Like if you, we really get a good kick going, then by all means, like turn it into something. Don't treat it like this min bare minimum responsibility you have to do. Um, I will be grading very subjectively on that one. It's basically going to be the equivalent of our class participation grade um, now that we can't participate in class. Um, but that said, you don't have to participate in the discussion boards if you show up to the Q&A. Um, the Q&A session we're going to do every Wednesday at 10 o'clock. It's not exactly when we would have class, but I figured sleeping in is good. Also, I've been waking up at 9.25 lately, so that's not great. Um, I do not want to fall out of bed and immediately come to class, but I do want to keep it class related like related to when you would normally be going to class because as much as possible i want to retain the schedules that you've already got in place i want you to treat this like a face-to-face -face class session so at 10 o'clock wednesday morning i'm going to get on discord and anyone who is there in the chat with me we will ask questions and answer questions we will do basically our normal class discussion um, and i'm hoping at that point you will have both read the text and listened to my lecture um, so, you know, we have something to talk about. It'd be kind of dumb if you showed up to the Q&A and didn't have any, like, questions to ask. I, would, I don't really want to sit in the chat and just, like, hum to myself while everybody sits around awkwardly. Um, I'm hoping that these will be as lively as our class discussions. But I also warn you in advance, I suck online. Just as a rule, I don't know what it is about my constitution, but I really respond well to like being in the same room with other people. Like I've acted on stage and I do well at that. I can't imagine acting as well when I am like sitting in front of a camera and not actual humans. Um, I'm hoping that my lectures are fairly engaging, although I doubt they're as engaging as the stuff that, you know, I would actually say and do in class when I'm actually present with you. Um, but I also have a feeling that the Q&As are going to be awkward. Just as a matter of course. I suck at internet. It's a thing. I admit this about myself. I hope to get better over the course of the semester. Um, but that means that a lot of the burden is going to be on you to keep that conversation going. Um, come with questions, come prepared to talk, come prepared not to be shy. Um, but on the flip side, we also need to keep it from growing into complete anarchy. Um, the downside of getting into a vo voice chat room with like 20 students is if we don't have some basic ground rules, some understanding of how we're supposed to behave online, it's going to devolve into chaos really quickly. Um, so 
I have designed our chat room so it requires push to talk on all of my students' parts, but I just talk normally and I can always outshout you. Like I get priority as far as my my volume is concerned. Um, what I'm hoping is that we'll end up instituting like a, a hand situation. So, you know, there's the great advantage to Discord is that it has both a text box for writing text as well as a like voice chat component. Um, so if you want to talk, if you have a question, if you have something you want to add to what's been said in the Q&A, just like type hand in the box or use a hand emoji or whatever, and I will call on you just like I would in class. Um, I'll be able to see everybody's posts individually. Um, it should be really easy. And then you can say your piece and then we can go back and forth and like, we'll, we'll have to keep it, we'll have to figure it out to some degree. Like I can't exactly anticipate all the things that can happen but what i am hoping is that we're also going to be decent about this like the last thing i want is for you know us to be sitting in there talking about philosophy and then all of a sudden some random person in the chat is like get out of my room mom like it's awkward for me it's awkward for you we're, we'll all laugh at you and you don't want that so you know just be considerate be careful um wait for your turn to talk rather than you know jumping in out of turn like there, I'm sure that there will be situations where it's warranted, but just be careful. Um, we don't want to have like 14 people talking over each other. And for what it's worth, like you can totally send messages to each other in the chat as well, completely without my notice. So it will be entirely possible for you to, you know, chat secretly or ask questions of your friends or have an entirely separate conversation going on at the same time that I don't need to know about and don't want to know about. Um, it's the internet. Hooray. Uh, but the other part of this is if you do want to participate in the Q&As, again, completely optional, um, but it will supplant the discussion board requirement. So if you show up to the Q&A and you have questions to ask, or if you have something to some information to volunteer, or if you just want to talk about the text for a while, great. You no longer have to participate on the discussion boards. You get that requirement waived for that week. I will keep track of who speaks and who's silent and so on, and we'll make that work. Um, also, if you want to participate in the discussion boards, I need your Discord handle. Um, if you are familiar with Discord, that means sending me the handle that you've already made. If you are not familiar with Discord, it means once, once you create your screen name, um, you will need to send me that name along with the hashtag and the numbers that follow. That's your Discord tag. Um, once you do, I will send you a friend request and I will invite you to the server. Um, once you're a member of the server, you can join at any time. Um, which means at 10 o'clock on Wednesday, show up in the server. Uh, that said, I might very well be online at other times. You are welcome to send me messages on Discord if you see me bopping around or if you just want my attention. Um, they will send me an email if you send me a message and I don't hear about it or if I'm not there to receive it. Um, so feel free to use that as another avenue of discussion in addition to email and the Canvas chat. Um, I can't guarantee I'll be on all the time, but I do check Discord fairly frequently. I am using it for two classes during the week, and I will be adding handles all week long. Um, so I'll be in and out pretty frequently. And that's in addition to any time that I spend gaming with my friends on Discord, who will probably all make fun of me now that I've changed my handle from Murphy Minion to Professor Kozlowski like a professional jerk. Um, 
So anyway, again, let me stress, if you want to participate in the Q&As, make sure you get your handles to me. There is a chat session or a discussion board on uh, Canvas where you can send me your handles. This is all perfectly acceptable public information, but if you want to send it to me privately, that's fine too. Um, just get that to me as soon as possible and we'll get you set up. So next Wednesday when, the, when our Q&A sessions start, i.e. this Wednesday when you're listening to this in all likelihood um to clarify wednesday the 25th of march um that'll be our first q a session and anyone who is like ready to join in is more than welcome to um get it to me by then um other than that again there's not going to be that much to change our schedule doesn't change our assignments aren't going to change except for the ones i've mentioned um even the additions are to some degree superficial and i acknowledge that the main difference is you're going to be responsible for doing this stuff yourself and again let me stress get a schedule get this to be your routine um do the readings over the weekend listen to the lecture on monday um fill out the discussion boards on Tuesday if that's what you want to do or show up to the Q&A on Wednesday if that's what you'd prefer um, be sure to catch those quizzes they still have the same due date as before um, and then do not do not do not miss those big assignments that are coming down the pike um, that's the easiest way to fail this class um, so don't let that happen now other than that, there's not a lot of bureaucratic stuff to talk about that I can anticipate. So I imagine that you probably do have questions about how the class is going to proceed. Great. Um, put them in the general discussion board uh, as questions or ask them to me on the Q&A session on Wednesday. We will probably spend a substantial amount of time talking about how all the logistics are going to work. Um, I know, again, big changes all across the board. Um, but I do actually want to spend the rest of this lecture talking about Descartes, because um, there's a lot to talk about. Um, like, a lot, a lot. Um, first off is the stuff that isn't in the book. Like, I do want to talk about what he actually has to say in the meditations. I definitely want to talk about his argument um, and the problem that he is addressing. But I also need to talk about the situation in time. Um, when we jumped from the ancient to the medieval period, I didn't really spend a lot of time explaining it because I was absent that day. Um, I bailed on the first Aquinas class, unfortunately, and then we were off to the races as soon as we met. Like, we were talking about Aquinas and his role, um, which means we didn't spend a lot of time talking about the history and what the actual change meant there. Um, and I want to kind of revisit that and then pivot it into a discussion of the change that we're now seeing, the movement from medieval to modern philosophy. Because we are in our third period now that we are have uh, passed the midpoint of our class. Um, so obviously when we were talking about Plato and Aristotle and the ancients, we were talking about like old, old philosophy, like 300 to 400 BCE um, old 2,500 years ago in some cases. Um, and a lot changed as philosophy developed. Part of that's because of the his historical changes, like political changes. Ancient Greece became first the greatest power in the world when Alexander the Great swept through all of the ancient Near East and half of Persia and even made it into India. And he brought Greek philosophy with him. So all of a sudden, everybody's reading the Greek philosophers. This is how Plato and Aristotle got super famous in the first place. But immediately after that, they also got wrecked by the Romans. 
And then the Romans took over, and the Romans ran the show, and they liked Plato and Aristotle. They built their philosophy on Plato and Aristotle, but they also modified it. Um, a lot of the philosophers changed the way that Plato and Aristotle were understood. They added details, they reinterpreted it in new ways. And then after the Romans beat them, the Christians show up, and they mucked up the whole process. Um, because Christianity became such a powerful religious force, a lot of Christians were sort of adopting Christian theology and trying to mix and match it with Plato and Aristotle, the great secular scientists and philosophers. Um, and like this is what defined medieval philosophy, this fusion of religion with the secular philosophy and secular science. So, you know, while St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas are fusing Christianity with Plato and Aristotle, on the other hand, you have like great Islamic philosophers like Avicenna or um, Averroes who are combining Islam with Plato and Aristotle, or Maimonides, the famous famous Jewish philosopher who is combining Judaism with Plato and Aristotle. Because again, Plato and Aristotle, that's science as far as everyone is concerned. There are no scientists in the traditional sense yet. Science hasn't been invented. Um, philosophy is what you do if you want to study the world in any way. Everything that we would call physics, the philosophers call physics because it's philosophy. Um, that field is within the realm of what is real, i.e. what we call metaphysics. Um, so this was the case for a good solid 1500 years. Like Plato and Aristotle were the only reasonable scientific or philosophical sources. They were the source of all knowledge for a good solid 2000 years. And it's only going to be Descartes who really upsets that. Um, but before we can get to Descartes, we have to talk about what is going on in the world at the point where Descartes is writing. See, during the medieval period, at least in Western Europe, this is what a lot of scholars for a lot of years were calling the Dark Ages. Um, Rome fell, the political infrastructure that it offered dissolved along with it, and what it left in its place was basically just chaos. Like, the church continued to thrive. The Catholic Church is going to be the political and religious power center of uh, the medieval period, but without the guidance of the Roman Empire, all of the provinces of what used to be Rome, all of Europe and Northern Africa, they sort of just fragment and become these little sort of like miniature nation states in their own right, governed by feuding lords and like petty kings who are trying to seize as much power as they can for themselves. This is feudalism. Um, and during feudalism, not many people read and write. Um, science is not being advanced very far in the Western world. The only centers of knowledge that exist are monasteries, cathedrals, major religious centers. So as a result, it makes sense that everything that is science, everything that is philosophy, would be married to everything that is religion. Um, and this is a time-consuming, slow process. Um, like... A lot has been lost, for one thing. The original texts of most of Plato and Aristotle's writings are just gone, disappeared in the sack of Rome. Um, like, the entire Western Europe, European world doesn't know anything about Plato and Aristotle besides, like, one or two texts of Plato, the Timaeus and one other, um, uh, and what other philosophers who have survived report. 
guys like Boethius, um, different philosophers that became major uh, like textbooks or major sources of information for the medieval period, but weren't themselves Plato and Aristotle. They were just quoting them. Um, so the entire Western philosophical understanding is based on this sort of lost philosophy, them trying to sort of piece together what Plato and Aristotle had said. And if you're sick and tired of me talking about Plato and Aristotle, like why, what makes these guys the most important names in philosophy? Well, there isn't anyone else. Um, I know that we have, like, as a class, been super resistant to these authorities, these major figures, but what I had to stress with Aquinas and what I really want to stress now is this is it. Like, nobody else is doing anything closely resembling to the pursuit of knowledge. Like, there are a lot of theologians in one capacity or another, people who are, like, trying to understand God and the Bible. Um, but as far as, like, how does the world work, everybody's like, well, Plato and Aristotle did all that. that those are the only people who have had any great amount of knowledge. And because Plato and Aristotle are largely approved by the church, they work. Um, and in this time of incredible economic downturn and, like, political infighting and just real lack of safety and security um like even the monasteries are getting raided on a regular basis by vikings and other you know people who want to steal all their stuff they've they're wealthier than the average like duchy um it's a dangerous time and there's not a lot of room for new research there's no procedure in place so there are a lot of thinkers who are sort of adapting these ideas changing them in certain ways remixing them or like aquinas even combining them into something that is essentially new for the most part thought scholarship relies on the authority of the ancients the greats plato aristotle the bible um, Augustine, other scholars who came before, um, their word is absolute, and you don't gainsay it, even the way that Aquinas does, unless you've got a really good reason for it. It doesn't mean that there's, like, no scholarship. There are these active debates going on throughout the medieval period. There's really interesting things that are being done, um, but it doesn't look the way that we would call science now. Um, that's something that changes with the advent of the Renaissance. Um, see, the Renaissance is rightfully talked about as this really important moment in history where the entire sort of attitude towards research, towards scholarship, towards just the way that they understand the world is changing. Um, like, I've heard pushback about this idea of the Renaissance being a big deal. It certainly didn't affect, like, the average man in the street. You're still a poor peasant before the Renaissance as you are a poor peasant after the Renaissance. You are still illiterate before the Renaissance in the same way that you were illiter illiterate after the Renaissance. But the Renaissance does change what is going on at the highest levels, and that means it's changing scholarship radically. And there are a couple of factors there. First of all, it's a period of rare peace um like after years and years of internecine fighting in the catholic church like being shattered into multiple fragments or being involved in the crusades or like just squandering their resource resources in pointless wars there's just this weird moment of peace that takes place for both the catholic church and for the italian uh like city-states generally 
Italy at this point is like the richest area in the entire uh, medieval world, largely because A, the church is there, but B, it's also this huge, very obvious, very convenient source for trade. So big cities like Milan or Florence, um, they're bringing in tons of money because you have all of these people trading from all over the Mediterranean, uh, from the Near East, who are going through Italy to get their goods sold into Europe. Um, and the Italians are making bank off of this. Like these cr incredibly wealthy Italian families are enabling all sorts of new works of art, all sorts of new works of scientific research. They're basically changing the way that the relationship between scientists and money works. Like now you are patronized. You get paid for doing stuff for your patron as opposed to the church just paying you to like research in some distant monastery which is tied to your responsibilities to the parish. Um, and lastly, of course, there's the printing press. Um, at the end of the 15th century, the printing press is invented and it single-handedly changes the speed at which you can produce scholarly works. Um, like up until this point, if you wanted to write a book or even copy an existing book, what it meant is you would have to like give your request to a monastery. They would get a bunch of monks to work on it for literally months. Like one monk working for maybe six months could produce one crappy Bible. Um, and usually you don't make crappy Bibles. You illuminate the crap out of them because they're going to be the one source in a parish. So it'll take you multiple years to finish a Bible. So now where you had like, I am going to make a Bible, it's going to take a year long. When Gutenberg invents the printing press, all of a sudden he can make 500 Bibles in a matter of two months. And by the time that like the early 15th or 16th century rolls around, we've perfected the technology well enough that we're creating like 500 Bibles in two weeks. We're dramatically changing the rate at which these books can be made. Um, and that means that there's more time for other stuff. Like, there was a glut on Bibles because you always needed a Bible for every parish. So the Catholic Church is rigorously trying to reproduce Bibles as quickly as possible. And then in their spare time, a monk can, say, work on copying the one copy of the Timaeus that they have around, the one copy of Plato or Bo Boetius. But now, since we've got the printing press, you can make 100 copies of Plato in no time at all, and it doesn't actually require any greater investment of resources or time. Um, this changes everything. Um, especially because a hundred years before Aristotle had been rediscovered, Plato had been rediscovered. Um, one of the main Islamic strongholds, the Moorish town of Toledo in Spain, there was this huge library there that was captured by the Western Europeans and they found all of these Arabic texts of Plato and Aristotle, which means that they've been able to reintroduce it into the Western world. That's what Aquinas is doing. It's the first time that he can adapt Aristotle to Christianity since Augustine was doing it a thousand years ago. So it's a huge deal. So in the Renaissance, these factors all combine to make this very unique moment in history, a moment of peace and prosperity, a moment where science can actually proceed at a rapid rate, and a moment when uh, all of the old masters are back in circulation. Everyone can now read Plato and Aristotle because first it was found and now it can be copied. So all of the literate people in the world, as far as, you know, Western Europe is concerned, um, they can all read Plato and Aristotle and they can all change Plato and Aristotle. 
Like, if I am Brutalici, who is pioneering new techniques in architecture and, like, linear perspective in art, I can write a treatise on it, like, put it to paper, get it to a printing press, and for relatively little effort and money, suddenly there are going to be 500 copies of my treatise, and I can spread them wherever I want. And that means that, like, Leonardo da Vinci is going to read my work, and Michelangelo is going to read my work. Um, all the great artists are communicating in this way. They're sharing their ideas, and it'll, the Italian art scene flourishes. That's why we get, you know, these greatest of great artists, da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, um, Botticelli. Like, these are all shared experiences, Something that couldn't be done before because just because you had an idea didn't make it important enough to require the effort of copying it and getting other people to listen to you. Now, there's, you can write your book, get it all over the city, and even spread it to the far corners of the world, and people you've never met can read what you've written. It's, it's crazy. Like, this is wild. But at the same time as this means that there's this huge explosion of scientific interest and this explosion of uh, scientific investigation, it also means that there's going to be a new wave in religion as well. Um, see, shortly after the High Renaissance, like the painting of the Sistine Chapel ceiling or the, or the Last Supper by da Vinci or the creation of the David by Michelangelo, like at the same time as all these great works of art are being produced, there's also a growing pushback against the Catholic Church in religious circles. And this comes to a head in 1517 when Martin Luther posts the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. See, the Catholic Church had been engaging in this practice called indulgences, where, like, if you do something nice for the church, like maybe you kill one of the church's enemies, or maybe you go fight in the Crusades, or maybe you just make a very sizable donation, the church will pardon your sins and you'll be able to get a fast track into heaven. And Martin Luther is not standing for this shit. This is not what the Bible says. This has nothing to do with proper Christian teaching. He is not going to put up with a bunch of greedy, vicious priests and cardinals exploiting their power for the sake of heavenly favors, which Martin Luther stresses, that's not how it works. Jesus doesn't forgive you because of the money you pay his church. So he gets mad. And he posts these things on the 90, he posts these 95 theses and overnight the world catches on fire. Um, Protestantism is born. And this is a huge deal. Like for the next 50, 60, even 90 years, Europe is going to be at war all the time. There's going to be revolutions left and right. The established order of the Catholic Church, which has run Europe for the last thousand years without question, is now facing its greatest challenge, um, like an unprecedented challenge. Up until this point, the only thing that the Catholics were worried about were other Catholics, schisms in the church. One pope standing up and saying, I'm the pope, and another pope standing up and saying, no, I'm the pope, and now you have a pope and an anti-pope, and this will like mean war for years to come. Now, all of a sudden, you have Martin Luther straight up saying, we don't have to listen to you at all. Our salvation does not depend on a bunch of priests, cardinals, or even the Pope. And when Martin Luther says this, other people get the same idea. Like, a bunch of people follow Luther. These become the Lutherans, and it sweeps through Germany and Scandinavia. Um, but at the same time, we get John Calvin, a Protestant in uh, Denmark, or no, the Netherlands. He goes out and says, 
hey, if Luther can say whatever he wants about the Bible, if he can read it himself because, you know, Bibles are readily available now, I can do the same thing. I can come up with my own ideas. I can come up with my own theology. And he does. And he makes his own churches. And a whole bunch of people follow him. And then Henry VIII, the current king of England, he's asking the Pope for a divorce. And the Pope is kind of busy right now because Rome is being, P.S., sacked. Henry VIII is like, well, screw it. I'll make my own damn Protestant religion and I'll give myself divorces and now I will not have to cut off the heads of all my wives all the time. Um, so he does. And that's how we get the Anglican Church. The point here is Protestantism explodes and explodes and explodes and it fractures and it fractures and it fractures. And there are going to be so many wars as a result of this. Catholics versus Protestants are going to be fighting for 90, 100, 150 years. This is going to define the entire landscape of the 16th century and 17th century in Europe. Um, and the Catholics are really upset about this. Um, like, when the entire Protestant schism takes place, they kind of approach it like they have most other heresies and schisms, i.e. they raise up a certain group of Catholic monks who are now tasked with eliminating Protestantism by any means necessary, and they're like, go, kill all the Protestants, or at least convert them, or at least get rid of this heresy. So they make this monk monastic order, namely the Jesuits. And the Jesuits immediately get sidetracked and, and do not pay any attention to Protestants. Instead, they become this really impressive scholarly sect. Ignatius is not interested in killing a bunch of Protestants. Um, so that fails. So they declare the Council of Trent, where they're going to sit down and say, all right, this is what makes us different from Protestants. This is why the Catholic Church is true and all Protestant churches are bad. We're going to state all of our things and that should bring everybody back. And it, of course, convinces nobody. None of the Protestants are impressed. If anything, it just entrenches the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism even more, which is where the church turns mean about it. Um, where the church be, is still prominent, namely Italy for sure, France quite a bit, Spain absolutely, some scattered parts of Germany and more Eastern, Western Europe, um, they start seeking out and destroying Protestantism wherever they find it. This is the Spanish Inquisition. This is the Inquisition generally. This is the bonfire of the vanities. Catholicism is getting really defensive about its theology and its policies now that Protestantism is threatening them on every side. So the reason why I stress this is because this is the world that Descartes is writing in, a world that is paranoid about free thinking in any of its forms, which coincides at the exact same moment when people are thinking differently because of this explosion of scientific in information and this new sort of conversation that is going on amongst scientists and artists because of the Renaissance, because of the printing press. At the same time as this war between the Protestants and the Catholics is going on, you get some early astronomers like Copernicus, Kepler, writing these new treatises on how astronomy works and whether directly or indirectly, challenging the old Catholic wisdom about how the planets move. Copernicus publishes this book where he basically says, hey, I did the math, retrograde motion doesn't really make all that much sense. What if instead of the sun being a thing that goes around the earth, what if the earth goes around the sun? Like, 
crazy thought experiment, totally hypothetical. I'm not saying that this is actually the case, just saying like, this really lines up nicely with the math over here. What if we entertained the possibility that the sun goes around the earth instead? And the Catholics are like, no. But fortunately, Copernicus dies before he publishes this treatise, so he doesn't get in any trouble over it. Galileo, on the other hand, is not nearly so tactful. He goes guns blazing, wait, the math totally says the sun goes around the earth, or the earth goes around the sun, not the other way around. Retrograde motion is bullshit. Everything the Catholics have been teaching you is nonsense. Astronomy is something that we should be doing with math and science only. And the Catholics arrest him, keep him under house arrest, and ban all of his writings. See... The scientific method is just beginning to grow right now. The first sort of engineers behind what will become science are writing at this very moment in time, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Guys like Galileo, guys like Francis Bacon, who is insisting on experimentation as the foundation of scientific inquiry. And that includes Descartes. But Descartes is a little late to this party. And more importantly, Descartes is wary of what is going on. He watched as Galileo got arrested by the church. He saw all of his books get banned, and Descartes doesn't want that to happen to him. So Descartes is about to write this treatise, The Meditations, the one that we're going to read in class. It's going to be a big deal. He knows it's going to be a big deal. He is going to do philosophy in this entirely new way that has never been done before, using the principles of personal experience, which he has learned himself, and the principles of experiment experimentation that Bacon has been emphasizing, and the importance of data and rigorous observation of the universe around him, the way that Galileo has been talking about. Descartes is very much one of the main engineers behind what will become the scientific method, and we'll see that play out in the meditations. But Descartes is also going to be careful. He doesn't want to piss off the church. He doesn't want to get imprisoned. He doesn't want his books to be banned. He wants to say, hey, we can do science and religion at the same time. There's no problem there. Like Galileo said the same thing. He's like, yes, the earth goes around the sun. Yes, I realize this is a big difference from what Plato and Aristotle were saying. You know what else I know? It doesn't actually conflict with the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible say that the sun goes around the earth. It just says that the sun rises and sets the way that any other, like, things do. It doesn't have some big statement on science. It's not interested in that. Galileo is not saying, there's no God. He's saying God made the world in a different way than you thought it was. Now, Catholicism is a little too paranoid about Protestantism to be able to recognize the nuance in this argument, but Descartes does. And Descartes wants to stress it. And Descartes is going to write this book with the intention of defending Galileo, defending Bacon, defending the scientific method, defending all of these people who are experimenting and doing science and philosophy in new ways, while trying to keep it compatible with what religious teaching has been to this point. He is not going to stick at little things, but he also wants to make sure that the church doesn't stick at little things. He wants to sort of split the difference. So part of his plan here is he ends up publishing not one, but two books. The first is his Discourse on Method. The second is the book we're going to read, The Meditations. 
Both of them come out within five or ten years of each other, so in pretty quick succession, and they both also refer to one another. The discourse especially includes the argument of the meditations in the body of its text. The meditations is, by contrast, just the philosophy where the discourse is more about science and how philosophy should be done. But importantly, Descartes strategically publishes each work in a different language as well. See, at this point, again, due to the printing press, due to the sort of democratization of science and knowledge, due to the fact that, like, tons more people are literate than ever before because they have access to books like never before, um, there's a new resurgence, a new effort to sort of, like, write books in the native languages of the countries that they're coming from. Like, up until, say, the 15th or 16th century, virtually anything that gets written anything that gets put on paper is going to be written in Latin. That is the language of all of the scholars everywhere in Western Europe. Um, if you were a monk studying at a monastery, you speak and write in Latin because then any church person anywhere in the Christian world can read your work if they are literate because they're trained to read and write in Latin. Um, Descartes, however, lives at a time when there are quite a few people who still read and write in Latin. This is still the language of the church. They still hold fast to their traditions, and they still do to this day, by the way, P.S., and it's actually kind of super convenient. But at the same time, he also has a body of French readers, secular French readers, who would totally be able to read it in French. So he publishes his two different treatises. The Discourse on Method, he publishes in French, so anyone can read it. Scientists can read it, scholars can read it, anyone who speaks French can read it, which is, again, most of the Western European world. If there is a second language to Latin at this point, it's French. Like, if you're in Britain, you speak French. If you're in Spain, you speak French. This is the language of in the secular intelligentsia. Um, but the Meditations, he publishes in Latin. So on the one hand, the discourse is the wild one. It is, this is how we should be doing science. This is how science should look. Using Bacon, using my personal experience, as a result of all of my travels, this is what I have learned about the world and how we should understand it. He writes it in French so anyone can read it. But the meditations, the more philosophical work, the work where he does in fact speak to the typical philosophical traditions of investigating the nature of God and investigating the nature of ideas, this is going to write in Latin. So the church specifically will read it. And as a result, this is probably the more church-friendly work, but also the more church-directed work, which should inform the way that we read it. Um, keep in mind, Descartes is writing to the church in this book. He is writing to people who have been doing philosophy all their lives. He is writing to the people who have done the tradition of philosophy, who have read Thomas Aquinas, who have read Plato and Aristotle, who, are, who see philosophy as doing more of the same. Even as he's challenging that idea in the Discourse on Method, and even within the body of this text. But notice, too, that the way Descartes does philosophy is completely different from everything that has come before. See... The reason why Descartes is kind of the cutoff, like Descartes and the Renaissance, is the cutoff between what was medieval philosophy and what will become modern philosophy is because it radically changes the perspective that philosophy is done in. So you'll remember all the way back to Plato, we were talking about what is piety? What is the good? What is justice? 
Here are these transcendental ideal forms. They're things that exist. We have words for them. What do those words mean? What are those ideas? What are the things that link all good things, all beautiful things, all just things together? Even Aristotle is starting from first principles. Like what is the basis of what we're talking about? What is the metaphysics underlying the universe? All of their questions are geared towards what is reality? What is the world around us? How does it work? How does it fit together? What are the component parts? How did it come to be? Um, what is God's role in this? And Aquinas doesn't change that tactic. Like, sure, he changes it insofar as he's talking about it from a Christian perspective, but at the end of the day, the questions are the same. What is reality? What is God? What is God's nature? How does he interact with the world? That's the same sort of thing, just with a new spin on it. But Descartes, Descartes wants to start with nothing. Descartes wants to assume nothing. He does not assume that there is even a goodness, much less some kind of ideal form of the good. He does not assume there is a God, the way that Aquinas assumes there is a world. He doesn't even, he isn't even willing to assume that his experience is true. Where Aquinas is like, look around you, the world is here, stuff that moves is moved by other things, therefore something must have moved it, therefore God. Descartes is like, how do I know things are moving? Descartes is inquiring not about the nature of the world out there, he's inquiring about the nature of his own mind, what is going on inside. He is turning the philosophical spotlight from the world around him to his himself, reevaluating what can I know, what am I doing, and for that matter, what is knowledge? What are the criteria of knowledge? How do I know things? And if this is ringing bells, it should, because this is where we are moving from the business of metaphysics, what is reality, to epistemology, what is knowledge? How does my mind work? Descartes is much more interested in how he processes the world than the world itself. So let's look at the text, because this is borne out very early in Meditation 1. So even from the first paragraph, he states, several years have now passed since I first realized how numerous were the false opinions that in my youth I had taken to be true, and thus how doubtful were all those that I had subsequently built upon them. And thus I realized that once in my life I had to raise everything to the ground and begin again from the original foundations if I wanted to establish anything firm and lasting in the, in the sciences. Descartes going to destroy everything, take nothing for granted. He is going to suspect everything that he thinks that he knows and then try and like winnow out what are the things that he actually knows and how does that knowledge work. So the key, the key here, because again, like Aquinas does something fairly similar. He's trying to reduce everything to first principles to sort of rule out a lot of the universe at first. He does not take the Bible for granted, for example, but Descartes is not even willing to do that with his own sensation. In fact, sensation is exactly the problem as far as Descartes is concerned. Um, so first off, he says, I'm going to suspect myself, the things that I know. Um, to bring this about, I will not need to show that all my opinions are false, which is perhaps something I could never accomplish, but reason now persuades me that I should withhold my assent, so le no less carefully from opinions that are not completely certain and indubitable than I would from those that are patently false. 
He refuses to accept the things that he sees. He is going to reevaluate his knowledge and withhold his assent. Refrain from saying, yes, that is the case. Refrain from saying, yes, there is a God. Yes, there is a world. Yes, I see grass, whatever the case may be. Um, and he starts this by getting to sort of the source of what his problem is, the senses. Surely whatever I had admitted until now is most true I received either from the senses or through the senses. However, I have noticed that the senses are sometimes deceptive, and it is a mark of prudence never to place our complete trust in those who have deceived us even once. So Descartes, his whole project starts here. I doubt my senses because they occasionally deceive me. He gives us examples. There are people who think that their heads are made of glass or that they're gourds or whatever, um, and that their bones can shatter at a moment's notice. These people are insane. But Descartes says to himself, how do I know that I'm not insane? And surely there's like a certain amount of rationality that there's there, but that's not a solution either, because as he says, this would be all well and good were I not a man who is accustomed to sleeping at night and to experiencing in my dreams the very same things, or now and then even less plausible ones, as these insane people do when they are awake. He dreams, and in dreams he believes all sorts of crazy things. And more importantly, when he dreams, he believes all sorts of perfectly normal things, like that he's sitting in his study right now. How does he know the difference? How can he tell that he's not asleep? Is there a way to guarantee it? And for Descartes, the short answer is no, not yet. Um, if, in fact, there is no difference between what he sees and knows and experiences while awake and what he sees, knows, and experiences while asleep, then he can't trust his senses. And if he can't trust his senses, well, that's, that's the source of everything he knows. Like, everything that he knows about the world, he's either experienced personally, i.e. had it through the senses, or someone's told it to him through one of the senses, which means that it's no longer trustworthy. As he says, anyone who deceives us even once, we would be prudent not to trust. So we don't trust the senses. The key problem here is how do we trust the senses? What do we in fact know? What can we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that isn't corrupted by these potentially untrustworthy senses? So as meditation one goes on, he stresses, I am going to proceed as though nothing I experience is trustworthy. Let us assume then for the sake of argument that we are dreaming and that such particulars as these are not true, that we are opening our eyes, moving our head, and extending our hands. Perhaps we do not even have such hands, or any such body at all. Nevertheless, it surely must be admitted that the things seen during slumber are, as it were, like painted images, which could only have been produced in the likeness of true things, and that therefore at least these general things, eyes, head, hands, and the whole body, are not imaginary things, but are true and exist. In short, why do we trust our senses? What have they done for us lately? How do you know that you're not dreaming? How do you know that you are not in the matrix somewhere, getting your experiences fed to you through a bunch of wires and cords? At the end of the day, everything that we sense, everything that we experience is nonsense. Like, we say, I see a tree, but in fact, what you're receiving are electrical signals that your brain is interpreting in the picture of a tree. There's no tree, like, implanted on your memory. Um, it is not imprinted upon you. There's 
all of these layers of intermediary factors. And Descartes observes this. He sees it's not a tree. Like nothing I see is real. Nothing is trustworthy in that sense. So we're going to assume that we're dreaming. We're going to assume that all of our information is unreliable, untrustworthy, and then we're going to work from that attitude, that starting point, to try and deduce what we can actually know for sure. But we're not done yet. See, the natural response to this from the Christian church would be, well, what about God? Like, God guarantees that the things that we experience are true. Because God is trustworthy. God is good. We know this because it is a biblical truth. It is a truth of revelation. But Descartes suspects this as well. So in addition to suspecting his senses, he suspects his rationality. How does he know that 2 plus 3 equals 5? How do we know what rational truths we supposedly talk about? How do we know about extension or about composites? How do we know about arithmetic and geometry and math? How do we know that these things are true? How do we know that our reason is reliable if we can't know that our senses are reliable? So even God is not necessarily trustworthy. So can look at how he considers this possibility, like the old Christian adage that God makes it true. Be that as it may, there is fixed in my mind a certain opinion of long-standing, namely that there exists a God who is able to do anything and by whom I, such as I am, have been created. How do I know that he did not bring it about that there is no earth at all, no heavens, no extended thing, no shape, no size, no place, and yet bringing it about that all these things appear to me to exist precisely as they do now? Moreover, since I judge that others sometimes make mistakes in matters that they believe they know most perfectly, may I not, in like fashion, be deceived every time I add two and three, or count the sides of a square, or perform an even simpler operation, if that can be imagined? But perhaps God has not willed it that I be deceived in this way, for he is said to be supremely good. Nonetheless, if it were repugnant to his goodness to have created me such that I be deceived all the time, it would also seem foreign to that same goodness to permit me to be deceived even occasionally, but we cannot make this last assertion. What Descartes is sort of positing here is a variation on the problem of evil. God lets me be deceived from time to time. He lets me make mistakes. Why would he do that? Why would he let me screw up? Why would he cause me to think that I'm awake when I'm actually asleep? Why would he cause me to think that my head is a gourd when it's actually just a normal human head? Why does he let these things happen? If we can't trust him 100% of the time, then why do we trust him at all? And thus we come to his conclusion. We will assume, I will suppose, not a supremely good God, the source of truth, but rather an evil genius, supremely powerful and clever, who has directed his entire effort at deceiving me. Again, Descartes is not saying there is no God, or rather there is only this evil person who is deceiving me and this person is all-powerful. Like, this would be a direct affront to the church. That's not what Descartes wants to do here. What Descartes wants to do is say, yes, in all likelihood there is a God, that God is good, we'll get to that, don't you worry. But we're going to act as though he's not there. Because here we are, stuck in our senses, trapped, not sure of what is real and what is fiction, what we can trust and what we cannot trust, not sure what constitutes real knowledge and what is just a deception. Therefore, we're going to proceed under the assumption that nothing is trustworthy. My senses are not trustworthy. I am dreaming. 
my reason is not trustworthy, that it has been given to me corrupted or deceived. And that last of all, that God is not trustworthy, that we are being deceived by an evil genius, that there is some evil figure who is manipulating my senses into just for the purposes of like fooling me into thinking things are that aren't and things aren't that are. Um, we will assume this. We will assume that everything I think is wrong and then we will come back point by point. We will make totally solid, completely foolproof arguments and get at what we actually know beyond the shadow of a doubt. So this is our project. Our main question, what do we know? What can we know? Our main problem, we can't trust our senses and therefore can't trust our reason and therefore can't trust in a good benevolent God. Our goal is to get this stuff back, to demonstrate this is what we know for sure, we can trust our senses, we can trust our reason, and we can trust God. Meditation 2 is where we start this project. And Meditation 2 is perhaps the single most famous philosophical argument in the entire history of the discipline. Like, if you take nothing else away from this class, please remember Meditation 2. Because it's got the single most famous claim in all of philosophy. Um, so given that Descartes can no longer trust anything, not his senses, not his rationality, not God, he is left completely unmoored. He asks himself, okay, what, what can I know at this point? Yesterday's meditation has thrown me into such doubts that I can no longer ignore them, yet I fail to see how they are to be resolved. It is as if I had suddenly fallen into a deep whirlpool. I am so tossed about that I can neither touch bottom with my foot nor swim up to the top. Nevertheless, I will work my way up and will once again attempt the same path I entered upon yesterday. I will accomplish this by putting aside everything that admits of the least doubt, as if I had discovered it to be completely false. Put aside his senses, put aside his reason, put aside the theological truths. I will stay on this course until I know something certain, or, if nothing else, until I at least know for certain that nothing is certain. Archimedes sought but one firm and immovable point in order to move the entire earth from one place to another. Just so, great things are also to be hoped for if I succeed in finding just one thing, however slight, that is certain and unshaken. Therefore I suppose that everything I see is false. I believe that none of what my deceitful memory represents ever existed. I have no senses whatever. Body, shape, extension, movement, and place are all chimeras, figments of his imagination. What then will be true? Perhaps just the single fact that nothing is certain. But how do I know there is not something else, over and above all those things which I have just reviewed, concerning which there is not even the slightest occasion for doubt? Is there not some god, or by whatever name I might call him, who instills these thoughts in me? In short, he's asking, how do I know that there isn't anything else? How do I know that there is an out there at all? How do I know that there is, how do I know one way or the other that there is or there isn't a world outside of myself? How do I know that there is or isn't a God? He has to withhold his assent from either case. He can't posit that there is a God. He can't posit that there isn't a God. He doesn't know. He has to withhold his assent. Is there not some God, or by whatever name I might call him, who instills these very thoughts in me? But why would I think that, since I myself could perhaps be the author of these thoughts? Am I not then at least something? If there is no outside world, 
if there is an outside world, he could be experiencing the same thing. In short, he can't trust that there is an outside world, but one way or the other, he knows that there is a him. If he is the author of these thoughts, then he is the conjurer of all of these illusions. If he is not the author of these thoughts, well, then he is still thinking about them. I have already denied that I have any senses in any body. Still, I hesitate for what follows from this. Am I so tied to a body and to the senses that I cannot exist without them? But I have persuaded myself that there is absolutely nothing in the world. No sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Is it then the case that I too do not exist? But doubtless, I did exist, if I persuaded myself of something. But there is some deceiver or other who is supremely powerful and supremely sly and who is always deliberately deceiving me. Then, too, there is no doubt that I exist, if he is deceiving me. Let him do his best of deception, he will never bring it about that I am nothing, so long as I shall think that I am something. Thus, after everything has been most carefully weighed, I must finally be established that this pronouncement, I am, I exist, is necessarily true every time I utter it or conceive it in my mind. The famous expression of this is cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am. In short, even if he's being deceived, he's got to exist to be deceived. Even if he is conjuring up all of the sensations of the world around him and nothing else is real, he has to be real to receive and create the sensations. No matter how much he doubts, the fact that he doubts means that he must exist. So here is our fulcrum, here is our first principle, here is this thing that we cannot possibly doubt. I think, therefore I am. I have to be, because otherwise I can't explain the fact that I am experiencing things. It doesn't make any sense. It is a proof, solid and relentless, of my existence. Now, that said, we don't mean Descartes the whole human being. At this point, he doesn't know what a human being is. He doesn't even think that he has a body. Now, he, he considers this. He says, what then did I used to think I was? A man, of course, but what is a man? Might I not say a rational animal? No, because then I would have to inquire what animal and rational mean. The normal definitions of what a person is, Descartes rejects. Like, anyone worth their salt in the medieval world would have said, what is man? It is a rational animal. It is the animal that is separate from all the other animals because it reasons. Here is your category, animal. Here is your specific difference, rational. Classic categorical reasoning, classic Aristotelian taxonomy, classic Platonic definition. Descartes throws it out. Just flat out, nope, Descartes is basically saying Aristotle and Plato are not welcome in this discussion. For the first time in 1500, nigh 2000 years, somebody has basically looked at Plato and Aristotle and said, nope, not, not buying it, not interested, don't care, not helpful. This is the big change, as well as the fact that the principle we come to is completely separate from everything that has gone before. First principles for Plato usually mean what is the thing that we're talking about? What is God? What is piety? What is goodness? First principles for Aristotle have to do with observation of the world and extrapolation backward. Um, how do things move? What is potential and like 
actual energy. Even for Aquinas, the place that we start is, let's prove the existence of God, and then we can get to all the other things about the world after that. Descartes rejects all of this. His first principle is me. I think I am. My subjective experience is the most trustworthy thing in the universe. And I recognize it's not very trustworthy. Error is all around us. We are all deceived and confused. We are all lost trying to figure out what is real and what is not. But importantly, we start not with God, but with me. This is called the subjective turn in modern philosophical circles. We go from the interest in the objective, what is the world, what is metaphysics, what is truth, to the subjective. Who am I? What is, what can I know? What can I understand based on my perspective, my position in the universe? Now, Descartes also imports some major suspicions about what I am. Like I said, he's not a rational animal. I am not a rational animal. I am just defined by the fact that I think. I think, therefore, I am. So what am I? A thinking thing. Descartes concludes, bodies are not something we're going to talk about. Not now, anyway. We can't trust that we have a body. Maybe we're just being deceived about our sensations, about our bodies, whatever. I think I'm waving my hand right now. Maybe I'm not waving my hand. Maybe I just think that I'm waving my hand. At the very least, I know that I'm thinking I'm waving my hand. That's it. That's as far as I can go. I must withhold assent from the fact that I am, in fact, waving my hand, but I do not have to withhold assent from the fact that I think that I am waving my hand. With that in mind, I am just a thinking thing. All I do is think. All I am is thinking. I am a mind, separate from a body, separate from the rest of the world, separate from all the things that I can't trust and don't know for sure about. This is going to be trouble. Like, Descartes is going to set the stage for a lot of debate about exactly where the body and mind are divided. And he's going to get us trapped in this distinction between the body and mind that we're not going to be able to get out of for literally as long as there's been philosophy since. This question, how can I trust my senses, how can I believe in my body, is just going to haunt philosophers for 500 years. Um, Instead, the definition that he ultimately gives us, and you should definitely pay close attention to this because it will come up a lot in the rest of our discussion. On page 537, there's this tiny little paragraph in the first column. What then am I? A thing that thinks. What is that? A thing that doubts, understands, affirms, denies, wills, refuses, and that also imagines and senses. This is the comprehensive list of what Descartes, the thinking thing, can do. And it's important to understand that this is the limit of his power at this point in time. This is the sum total of what he, a thinking thing, the I and I think, therefore I am, is able to do. And notice the things that are on this list, and notice the things that are not on this list. So let's break them down one by one. A thing that doubts this is obvious. Descartes has been doubting since the beginning of this text. Doubt is what characterizes his behavior. Doubt is the foremost action that he has undertaken. So obviously doubt is a part of thinking. Obviously doubt is the central principle that causes him to believe he exists. 
Even if he is being deceived, the fact that he doubts means that he must exist. Therefore, doubting is a key component here. Doubting is not taking seriously the things that appear around him. And it is paired with understanding. Understanding is the opposite. It is understanding that causes us to believe in the things around us. Understanding is what causes us to realize what is true about the things around us or in ourselves. Understanding is what has brought Descartes to this conclusion that because he doubts, he must exist. If doubt is the principle he observes, understanding is the principle that causes him to observe it and fully grasp it and turn it into a principle. I think, therefore, I am. So we're going to see both in play. He is going to doubt going forward. He is going to question everything that he thinks that he understands. He is also going to understand things as he finds completely solid, foolproof, rational arguments for them. And these are also paired to affirmation and denial. Affirms and denies, he says. Affirms we've heard before. When he says withhold his assent, that means that he is not going to affirm these things. Is there a God? Descartes doesn't know. He withholds his assent. He does not affirm. When ultimately he concludes that there is a God, he will affirm that there is a God. He acknowledges, yes, this is the case. This is real. This is true. This is more than just a figment of my imagination or an illusion in my mind. He can affirm the things that aren't true, and then he makes mistakes. But the key is it requires affirmation, and that's something that he can do. He can say, yes, I exist because I observe myself thinking, and this is foolproof in my understanding. By contrast, he can also deny. And do not think that this necessarily means the same thing as doubt. This is on par with, I recognize that this thing does not exist. This is not the same as affirming. Like affirming is, I affirm this is the case. Denying is, I affirm that this is not the case. I reject this outright. Um, so there is a power of denying that means, yes, I deny that I know this thing. There is also a power of denying that means, yes, I acknowledge there are no unicorns in the world. Um, likewise, we have wills and refuses. Um, affirming and denying is the sort of uh, intellectual affirmation, like this exists, this does not exist. I know that this exists. I do not know whether or not this exists. Um, willing and refusing is the next step, making this practical action. I will to do X, I refuse to do Y. Um, due to the fact that I know something, I will act in this way. Due to the fact that I do not know something, I refuse to act in this way. We'll get back to the will and refusal in our next lecture, because um, this will get pretty sophisticated in its own right. But the last two I want to spend some special time on, imagines and senses. Um, these are very much the outliers in this list. Literally everything else that we've seen so far, um, Descartes has demonstrated, like it's very obvious why it's on the list. Understanding and doubting, we've seen him do firsthand. Affirming and denying, we've seen him do firsthand. Willing and refusing, we've seen less, but he recognizes that he has the power to do these things, and affirmation and denial is a matter of willing and refusing. But the fact that he imagines... Well, imagining requires images, and sensing requires stuff to sense. And yet these are the very things that we've been doubting all this time. But what Descartes is specifically saying here is that even if he does reject all the things that he senses, even if he looks outside and he sees a tree and he's like, nope, not really a tree there, I withhold my assent or I deny it outright, 
Either way, he cannot deny the fact that he senses that there is a tree. He has an image of a tree. And more than that, he can also produce an image of a tree. He can close his eyes and say, I want to imagine a tree and thus imagine a tree. These are both powers that he has and they are separate from his body. Even if he denies his hands and his feet and his eyes, he cannot deny that he is getting this information from somewhere and that he can rep reproduce this information in some way. Um, sensing and imagining seem to be intimately connected with an outside world that he at this point can't actually trust. But it doesn't change the fact that it is something that he can do, something that is going on, something that he cannot deny is a part of who he is. A thing that thinks must include a thing that imagines and a thing that senses. Now, to give you sort of a more concrete example of what we're dealing with and to sort of expand the problems that we have, Descartes uses this extended example of the wax. Um, and what Descartes is trying to stress here is that we can't actually trust that our senses line up with reality. So take this wax for example. On the one hand, here is the wax. It is this physical object. It makes a certain sound. It makes, it has a certain taste, a certain flavor. It still tastes like honey from the comb. It still smells like honey from the comb. Um, it is hard to the touch. It has this sort of pale whitish color. Um, it has all of these attributes and he can recognize that it is wax because of these attributes. Why is it wax? Because it looks like wax, because it sounds like wax, because it tastes like wax, because it smells like wax. If we have a definition of what wax is, it is going to be a list of these attributes, these sensed qualities. But what he stresses is all he has to do is bring the wax next to the fire and it loses all these qualities. It goes from being that pale whitish color to a pale goldish color. It goes from being hard and a certain shape to soft and malleable and liquid. It loses its flavor and changes to sort of absorb the smoke from the fire. It loses its scent and it stops making a sound when he raps on it. Every quality that would cause him to identify this object as wax disappears and is replaced with something else. And yet, we still call it wax. What he is questioning is why. Like, imagine, for example, I'm like standing at the front of the class and I bring out a piece of wax and I put it on the podium and I say, one minute, I've got to like go to the bathroom or something, watch my wax for me while I'm gone. And while I'm gone... Paul sneakily takes the wax and holds it over the heater and melts it. And then he puts it on the desk, not the podium. And I come back and I'm like, where's my wax? And Paul's like, I put it on the desk. How would I know that it's the same wax? It has none of the characteristics, none of the attributes that I've come to associate it with. Everything that would cause me to recognize this object is wax is gone. And if that's the case, how can we use our senses at all to recognize objects or even make concrete statements about them? I can't say wax is hard. It makes a sound when I rap on it because occasionally wax doesn't do that. It is neither of those things. I can say wax is this pale white color, but then it's a pale golden color and it's apparently still wax. That's a failing in our ability to understand the world. That means that we are limited, restricted from actual knowledge. 
what Descartes is stressing here is that this, these are assumptions that we make all the time. Like we assume that we recognize the objects in front of us, even though we're only recognizing them based on these limited core attributes that don't actually in cohere, do not actually insist. Like they could change at any moment. Um, and we wouldn't be able to appreciate these objects otherwise. We can't tell that the same object is the same object if literally everything that identifies it is now changed. Because that's the only way we understand things. The senses are the only way we have to interact with the world. Consider his other example. Meanwhile, I marvel at how prone my mind is to error, for although I am considering these things within myself silently without words, nevertheless I seize upon words themselves, and I am nearly deceived by the ways in which people commonly speak. For we say that we see the wax itself, and if it is present, and not that we judge it to be present from its color or shape. The wax is independent of its color, of its shape, of the attributes that we attribute to it. Whence I might conclude straight away that I know the wax through the vision had by the eye and not through an inspection on the part of the mind alone. Meaning, it's not the eye, it's not the way the wax looks that tells us that it's wax, it's the way that our minds ultimately interpret this information, the way that we put it all together. Like, anyone in their right minds upon seeing the, max, the wax melted is like, yeah, sure, that's wax, it's just melted wax. But what are you doing at that point? You're not recognizing it the way that you recognize the old piece of wax. You're applying interpretation to it. You're saying, oh, that wax must have changed because I know that wax changes because of past experience and our mental effort. Think about the sun. We look up at the sun and it's like, a dime in size like you can hold it with your fingers in most cases like don't look directly at it please for this example but it's tiny and yet people tell us it's actually this giant ball of gas burning billions of miles away great but how do we actually know that shouldn't we just trust our senses aren't our senses more reliable shouldn't we assume that it is a dime-shaped bright yellow object that hangs out in our sky why do we trust the people who apply to our experience who say well it's actually kind of like a house that is far away and therefore looks smaller than when you are close to it or like when you walk into the door um, our experience has to be interpreted we have to approach it with our minds not with our senses um, so Descartes continues then were I perchance to look out my window and observe men crossing the square I would ordinarily see I see the men themselves just as I see I see the wax but what do I see, aside from hats and clothes, which could conceal automata, robots? Yet I judge them to be men. Thus what I thought I had seen with my eyes, I actually grasped solely with the faculty of judgment, which is in my mind. Descartes acknowledges there is a clear, distinct difference between sensation and judgment. It is one thing for us to say, I see hats and coats and so on. It's another thing for us to say, I see men. I judge them to be men based on the attributes that I observe. I judge this puddle to be wax based on the experience that I've had of it. I don't see wax. No one ever sees wax. Just like you don't ever see another person. You only see the light. You only see the shape. You only see the impulses that your mind makes. You never see the thing itself. 
And again, this is going to haunt philosophy for a very long time. Now, I'm already running long. We're already coming up on the one hour and a half mark, and I really don't want like you to be forced to sit listening to these lectures for like two hours at a stretch. So I'm going to temporarily postpone um, the Meditation 3 lecture. I will be recording it later this week, so I guess it'll just be two lectures this week, and I hope that the Meditation 3 one will be considerably shorter than this one. But, you know, we had a lot to talk about for this one, so it's understandable. Um, this will be a fairly rare occurrence. Again, I'm hoping to pair these lectures together, um, like get one hour and a half for both of the lectures in the week, and then use the Q&A to talk about the rest of the stuff. Um, so don't, like, get totally stressed out by the fact that there's going to be like two and a half hours of lecture this week it's it's not going to be normal um but we'll talk about meditation three next time and we'll talk about the existence of god i'll probably record it tomorrow upload it tomorrow so you know for me it'll be back to back for you you're welcome to listen to it a couple days apart um or not as the case may be at any rate, I hope that this is working. If it is not, if like my voice sucks, or if you can't hear me, or if you're having technical difficulties, please, please, please let me know. Again, I definitely want to fix these problems. I want you to be engaged in the class. I do not want you to fall away, because that, that's, that's just going to screw you over in the long run. Um, so I hope you are enjoying your spring break. I hope that you have enjoyed your spring break at this point. Um, good luck, and I'll talk to you soon.